Welcome to the 22 Threads Podcast. I'm your host, Mediocre Dan, and this is drop number six. Did you miss us? This episode is going to be a little different than my other episodes. As a journalist documenting the history of UConn athletics, I try to leave my personal perspective out of the events and let the story tell itself. But in this episode, I want to share the story of UConn's fifth national championship from the perspective of a lifelong UConn fan. Me. One of the greatest things about being a fan of any sports team is that while every fan gets to ride all the highs and lows together, they also get to experience it in their own unique ways. Different moments and different achievements by the team means different things to different fans. So I want to share the story of the 2022-23 UConn men's basketball team from the way I experienced it. After the episode, I encourage you to sit back and think about the moments you remember that were important to you, forever etched into your memory. My story starts in the early 90s. Growing up the son of a huge UConn fan and alumni, we have home videos from my early birthdays of me opening presents while my dad was on his hands and knees in front of the TV watching UConn in Elite Eight games. I've been attending UConn games at the XL Center for as long as I can remember. We had season tickets there growing up. The first time I cried over a UConn game, and I remember this clearly, was in 2002 when UConn lost to Maryland in the Elite Eight. I was sad because it meant the season was over and I wouldn't see the team play together again. Another distinct moment I remember from my childhood was watching ESPN with my dad on just some random January day in 2005, and then seeing the ticker on the bottom of the screen announced Jim Calhoun had just signed a six-year extension, which I knew meant the legend would be coaching at UConn when I went there. And the plan was always to go to UConn. I was part of what my friends and I jokingly call the greatest UConn class ever, getting our college tenure bookend with the 2011 and 2014 championships. And throw in the 2011 Fiesta Bowl, the 2011 Baseball Super Regional, 2013 and 14 Women's Championships, and it was a golden era for UConn sports. When I graduated in 2014, I had no idea the cliff that UConn basketball would fall off almost immediately after. I really don't think any UConn fan, even the UConn haters, could have imagined how far they would fall. But there they were, in the bottom half of a conference that claimed to own the history of the old Big East, but looked more like Conference USA. But a new young coach who liked to make big proclamations was coming in. I remember being pumped, but also a little bit skeptical. After all, the football program had just hired an up-and-coming star from Notre Dame, and that didn't work out too well. But all I could do as a fan was hope that the university had gotten it right. Almost immediately, Dan Hurley, the new head coach of UConn basketball, began to back it up. He talked a lot about the importance of building a culture and changing the way things were done. He didn't run a single player off the team. He took the challenge head-on, as other UConn fans and alumni can probably agree with. It felt like the hard way, but the hard way sometimes feels like the UConn way. Each season under Hurley, UConn improved. Their record got consistently better, the play on the court improved, the new recruits coming into the program were higher and higher quality. In just his second season at the helm, Dan Hurley had his team peaking in March, ready to make a run at the AAC tournament title before the world was shut down due to the pandemic. The next season, UConn made the NCAA tournament for the first time in five years, and then again the following season. I remember the crushing heartbreak, though, of those two first-round exits. I continued to believe Hurley was the right guy to be leading the program. I felt like he was a brilliant X's and O coach, willing to adapt his play style to make UConn a competitor every year. And on top of that, he was an A-plus recruiter and talent evaluator. But I'd be lying if I said I wasn't frustrated by the intangible aspect where it looked like his teams were playing tight in big games, never seeming to be able to play with poise when they needed it. 
but he had improved both Yukon and himself during his first four years on the job, that I felt that he had just that one last piece to fix to make both the team and himself elite. I remember being amped for the start of the 2022-23 season. I felt like things were going right again in the world of UConn sports. The football team was on a winning streak, about to become bowl eligible. Why not be the year for UConn men's basketball? And the Huskies got off on a roll to start the basketball season, dominating their first five cupcake opponents, both at Gamble and the XL Center. I point this out because for whatever reason, there was a debate going on on Twitter at the time that UConn shoots way worse at Excel than Gamble. I was interested, so I pulled the stats from every game under the Hurley tenure for both arenas, and UConn did indeed score about 7 points less per 100 possessions at Excel than Gamble, despite playing stronger teams at the on-campus arena. But early in the 22-23 season, the venue made no difference. This team was built differently. Hurley had ditched the two-big lineup that he had used during his first four years at the helm and moved to a four-out offense. That means he surrounded his center, Adama Sinoga, with four guys who could shoot three-pointers. He brought in Ahima Lean and Joey Calcaterra from the transfer portal to keep that firepower rolling from deep, even when starters Tristan Newton, Jordan Hawkins, Andre Jackson Jr., and Alex Caraban needed a break. The depth also paid off when UConn suffered a handful of injuries early on. Andre Jackson Jr. broke his pinky in practice before the season even started. Jordan Hawkins suffered a concussion in the first half of the season opener and starter Samson Johnson hurt his foot before the second game. But this also gave some of the new guys on the team an opportunity to step up and get valuable minutes early on. Alex Caravan, who wasn't a starter on opening day, stepped into the starting lineup for the injured Samson Johnson and would never relinquish his starting role. In fact, he led the team in minutes played as a freshman. In the third game of the season against Buffalo at the Excel Center, Tristan Newton had a triple-double as both Jordan Hawkins and Andre Jackson Jr. were out with their injuries. Just the 12th triple-double in the history of UConn. For the first test of the season, the Huskies traveled to Portland for the Phil Knight Invitational, with both Jordan Hawkins and Andre Jackson Jr. back and healthy. UConn drew Oregon in the first game of the tournament. UConn was playing more than 2,000 miles away from their campus, Oregon just 100 miles from theirs. But UConn blew out the Ducks by a score of 83-59. The win set up a matchup with 18th-ranked Alabama. Going into the tournament, I remember the feeling that in order for the trip out west to be considered a success, we had to at least win the first two games and reach the title game for what I assume would be a shot to play number one-ranked UNC. When UConn steamrolled Bama 82-67, I remember immediately after realizing this team was special. I saw that Bama was better than their ranking and knew that this would probably be the best win of the year we had even though plenty of people disagreed with the sentiment at the time. Looking back, it might have been the best win that any team in college basketball had all season. In the title game of the PK-85, UConn faced off with Iowa State and continued their early season domination. They smoked the Cyclones, 71-53. The vibes coming from the program were very 2011. A team that started the season unranked, running through its Thanksgiving week tournament, catapulting into the top 10 the following week. After UConn went on to beat Oklahoma State by 10, the closest any non-conference team would ever finish against UConn this season, and then beat Florida in Gainesville by 21, I thought Hurley had done it. I thought maybe he had finally figured out how to get his teams to play with confidence and poise in big games against big opponents. 
<laughs> well, then came Big East play. After winning the league opener at Hankel Fieldhouse, UConn managed to squeak by Georgetown at Gamble and Villanova a few days later at the Excel Center. At this point in the season, UConn had reached number two in the AP poll, was looking like a national championship contender, and was sitting at 14-0 on the year. So the Huskies headed into the Cintas Center in Cincinnati to take on Xavier for their biggest road test of the season to date. The game was back and forth. It was tied at 71 with under four minutes to go in the second half. But that's when things started to spiral for UConn's season. A Dan Hurley technical foul helped Xavier put the game away late. Then four days later, the Huskies lost again, this time on the road to rival Providence. UConn came back to Gamble and appeared to have steadied the ship, defeating Creighton 69-60, their first win over the Blue Jays since Connecticut rejoined the Big East in 2020. But then things continued to head south. UConn lost on the road at Marquette, despite leading at halftime. They got smoked at home versus St. John's, and then melted down on the road versus Seton Hall, blowing a 15-point second-half lead. <laughs> I remember the fan base losing their minds, including me. <laughs> a lot of people were calling for Hurley's head, which I actually thought was kind of hilarious. Like, who are we going to hire who would do a better job? Jim Calhoun isn't walking through those doors. Nothing on the game film from that string of losses showed that Hurley wasn't a great X's and O coach. I mean, if you watch the games, you saw the team was getting a ton of open looks. They just weren't knocking them down. They were playing tight. And then add in the mental lapses on defense, and it was clear why the team was losing. But I'll be honest, I mean, I was frustrated because it seemed like the can't win a big game narrative was continuing. Year five. Even though I thought the team had finally overcome that final hurdle back in Portland at the PKI. And then to compound the frustrations the fan base was having, The Athletic released an article where Dan Hurley pretty openly shared about his struggles with losing. You know, on one level, it seemed to add a little bit of fuel to the fire for a fan base who is melting down like a nuclear reactor. But on another, it may have publicly exercised some demons. It was incredibly brave of Coach Hurley to share some of those stories that he let get published. You know, not a lot of people would be comfortable enough in their own skin to openly admit those flaws especially during the middle of a losing streak. While it may not have been the best timing for those stories to come out, it also showed something that many fans knew about Coach Hurley. He was always going to put in the work. He will be adaptable. He will not stop until he succeeds. It was like a public reassurance through the press that he knew his approach needed to change, and he needed to change how he handled stressful games. At least that's how I interpreted it from the outside looking in. Hurley and the team responded. Even though UConn would lose a heartbreaking game to Xavier at Gamble, their sixth loss in eight games, and another tough one at Creighton two weeks later, the vibe of the team began to change. The team started playing with more swagger and confidence. Hurley looked poised on the sideline, but most importantly, the guys looked like they were having fun playing basketball again. UConn rolled through the final month of the regular season, going 8-1 down the stretch. Hurley once again had UConn peaking in March. Securing the four seed ahead of Providence, UConn was ready to battle it out in the Big East Tournament. Let's go! I was pumped. For the first time ever, I was going to the Big East Tournament. My brother went the year before and said it was a must-do event. So my wife and I traveled up from Nashville, and we made it a family trip. On the day of the tournament, Midtown Manhattan was buzzing. UConn and Big East fans were everywhere, Aside from catching a pie just by stepping outside my hotel room, it was pretty awesome to be there. We had tickets for the first session on Thursday, so we decided to go for the Marquette vs. St. John's game before UConn faced off versus Providence. 
even during that first matchup, just felt special to be in the garden. Anyways, the Huskies got off to a fast start versus PC, taking a 16-point lead into the locker room at halftime and building the lead to 26 points in the second half. But the Friars wouldn't go away. They battled back, cutting the lead down to five with under three minutes to go. I had been to a number of UConn-Syracuse games at MSG before, but even in those rivalry matchups, I don't recall it being that loud in the building. What an environment for my first Big East tournament experience. The Huskies held on to win the game 73-66, setting up a matchup with the tournament's number one seed, Marquette. Oh yeah, I was nervous about this one. <laughs> the number of $17 Goose Island drafts on my credit card statement is probably a testament to this, but it was two years in a row UConn failed to get past the Big East semifinals, and now to get to the championship, the conference champion Marquette was standing in our way. It was an entertaining first half, back and forth. The Huskies and the Golden Eagles flip-flopped the lead during the first 20 minutes, eventually ending up tied after a three-pointer by Alex Caravan at the halftime buzzer. But early in the second half, Marquette built a 10-point advantage. This was a gut-check moment for UConn. What version of the team was going to respond? The team that had collapsed on themselves in big spots earlier this year? Or the team that played with swagger and confidence during those last 10 games? It was the latter. UConn used an 11-2 run to draw within one with 10 minutes to play. Game on. The contest would remain close for the remainder of the second half, but UConn just couldn't get over the hump. UConn would lose by two, 72-70. I distinctly remember the expression on the team's faces when the final buzzer sounded. It was this mix of shock and sadness. They really wanted a chance to play for the Big East Championship, you could see it, and they really thought that they were going to win. As a fan, it definitely sucked to lose that game. But seeing a team that felt like they were supposed to win look that stunned, it really showed the confidence that they had in themselves as a group. Really just a signal that they would bounce back. On Selection Sunday, I remember thinking that one of two scenarios were going to play out. UConn would either be a four seed in the East region, back at MSG, back at our home court, or they'd be a three seed somewhere else. <laughs> well, I was wrong on both counts. Sure, they were a four seed, but it was out west. And of course, they drew against the best coach coaching in college basketball today, Slick Rick Pitino. Just didn't make sense. This was a team that was top eight in all predictive metrics, including the metric the NCAA invented to help them seed teams. It really made no sense. Honestly, it kind of felt like an insult. But hey, as a UConn fan, something that I know is that when other people won't give us respect, we will go out and earn it. But that feeling didn't last long, <laughs> as all the analysts on the selection shows were picking UConn to reach the Final Four. Now I felt like they were jinxing it. Ugh, I remember the next few days dragging on, and when finally Friday came around, the clock just wouldn't move. Before the game, I even tried to take a nap, just anything to slow my mind. And of course, the game started out in what felt like the worst case scenario. Iona was making ridiculous shots that they had no business making. It was giving instant flashbacks to the New Mexico State game from the year before. I was just trying to remain calm and just believe UConn would pull it out. <laughs> but going into the second half of an NCAA tournament game, trailing to Rick Pitino is never a comfortable position to be in. But just like that, boom! The Huskies came out blazing. Jordan Hawkins was fouled on a three-pointer and completed a four-point play that took UConn from down two to up two, and they would never look back. UConn imposed their will on an undersized Iona team that lacked depth behind their starting five. Adama Sinogo feasted inside, posting a 28-point, 
13-rebound double-double, and freshman center Donovan Klingen scored 12 points and 9 rebounds in only 13 minutes on the floor. In a game that felt to be in doubt at halftime, the Huskies came out and smoked Iona in the second half by 26 points, comfortably winning 87-63. The second game of the tournament against St. Mary's started in a similar fashion to the game against Iona. The Gales took an early lead behind some hot shooting, but eventually their lack of depth hurt them down the stretch, as UConn outscored them by 14 points over the final 14 minutes to notch a 15-point victory, 70-55. The team had finally broken through. For the first time in Dan Hurley's tenure, it was on to the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. Heading to Sin City to take on the Arkansas Razorbacks, who had just upset the one-seed Kansas in the round of 32. I remember going into the tournament that there were three teams, besides any of the Big East teams of course, that I didn't want UConn to run into. Bama, Miami, and Arkansas. I mean look, Arkansas was a team loaded with NBA athleticism, and even though they didn't have a ton of offensive firepower, especially from deep, in a single elimination game tournament it only takes one hot shooting performance by a team full of future NBA guys to end your season. But unlike the first two games of the tournament, this one wouldn't be close for very long. UConn opened up a huge early lead, boat racing Arkansas to a 17-point halftime advantage. The game felt like it was going to be put away early. But in the second half, Arkansas used some pressure to go on a 10-0 run over a two-minute span, where UConn never even crossed half-court. The Huskies found their poise and responded with a 10-4 spur to their own. You know, something that was really just special and magical about this entire postseason run is that it seemed every time an opponent made a move on UConn, the Huskies found a way to promptly stomp out the flame. The kill shot instinct that this team had was simply amazing. Anyways, UConn finished off the Hogs with a 23-point victory, 88-65. The game against Gonzaga in the Elite Eight would go the same way as the others. UConn led by seven at half and then blitzed Gonzaga early in the second to run away with the victory. The last few years, the media loved to talk about Gonzaga's center, Drew Timmy. All season, I was dreaming about seeing him go against Sinogo and Klingon. Look, Timmy's good. He has incredible footwork when he isn't traveling and some of the best touch around the rim that you'll find. But he also hadn't played anyone with Sinogo's strength or Klingon's size. Well, the bigs for UConn handled Timmy. Drew fouled out while being limited to 14 points on 5 of 14 shooting. Sinogo posted a 10-point, 10-rebound double-double. I couldn't believe it was happening. UConn back in the Final Four. All week leading up to the Final Four just started to feel like destiny, just like it did in 2011 and 2014. A magical run that couldn't be stopped by anyone. All week, yeah, I felt privately pretty confident that UConn was going to be cutting down the nets on Monday night while One Shining Moment was playing. But I tried to push those feelings down as much as possible because I still remember that sting of the Final Four loss in Detroit to Michigan State in 2009. So when the Final Four game against Miami finally arrived, I was oddly calm. At that point, it felt like all I had to do was sit there and soak it all up. And it probably helped that UConn jumped out to a 9-0 lead behind two three-pointers by Adama. But even when Miami battled back into it a few times, I always felt that UConn would just have the answers. In the end, it was a 13-point victory, 72-59 which actually was the closest game any opponent would be against UConn for the entire tournament. And it was on to the title. <sighs> but Championship Monday was incredibly slow. Unlike the Final Four where I felt oddly calm, all day Monday I felt incredibly nervous. 
My stomach was in knots all day. I could barely eat. Yeah, we made it this far. 40 minutes left. But I also know that in March Madness, anything can happen. I'll throw in here that the NCAA also needs to reevaluate their championship start times. 9.20 Eastern Time. 8.20 Central where I live. But that's still way too late. Anyways, it finally came. The game was here. UConn competing for their fifth title, a chance to pull ahead of Kansas and tie Duke in the trophy count. And Jim Nance was making his final championship game call for CBS. Well, once the ball was tipped, it was the Aztecs of San Diego State who threw the first punches. Just like in the games against Iona and St. Mary's, despite very good defense by UConn, SCSU used hot shooting to build an early lead. But after falling behind the Aztecs 10-6, UConn would go on an extended 30-14 run to close out the first half with a 12-point lead. The same script seemed to be playing out. Great defense by UConn, timely shooting by guys like Joey California, Jordan Hawkins, and Tristan Newton let the Huskies control the game. In the second half, UConn kept the Aztecs at arm's length, and even after they made a run to cut it to 5 points, it never fell in doubt. UConn would win the title in blowout fashion, surfing to a 17-point victory and completing the NCAA tournament with a 20-point average margin of victory across their six games. 120-point point differential. Just truly remarkable. Honestly, this season still just doesn't feel real. The lowest of those lows back in January just doesn't feel like it was that long ago. And now we are national champions. Again. For a fifth time. While I was alive and have memories about the 99 and 04 teams that won the first two national championships, obviously my fondest memories about UConn were the 2011 and 2014 teams when I was in stores. Both those teams just felt special. They had that legend like Kemba and Shabazz who just willed their team through March Madness. This team feels special too, but just on a whole other level. This team didn't just have a Kemba or a Shabazz, they had like 10 of them. It seems like every game, throughout the big wins in the regular season and the run through the tournament, a different guy stepped up every game. Adama Sinogo had his moments. Andre Jackson Jr. had his moments. Jordan Hawkins had his moments. Tristan Newton had his moments. Alex Caraban had his moments. Nikhima Lean had his moments. Donovan Klingon had his moments. Joey California had his moments. Hassan Diara had his moments. Even dribble it out, Andrew Hurley had his moments. It was truly the unselfishness of this team that makes it so special. Everyone knew their role, everyone made sacrifices, whether it was less playing time or taking fewer shots, all for the greater good of the team. And I just hope that everyone who has been involved in the program over the past five years of the Dan Hurley tenure understands the impact that this team has had on fans like you and me. For a while, I didn't know that we'd ever be back. Well, I dreamed we would. Sometimes I privately wondered if 2014 would be the last time we reached the top of college basketball. Never for a second did I waver in my support for the program. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't have moments where I questioned if we could ever reach those lofty heights again. Not because I thought Dan Hurley couldn't or the team couldn't, but just because of accepting how hard it is to get to the top of the mountain, even in years when you have the best team. But they did it. They made it back. 
And something that'll forever be etched into my mind was from the opening video that CBS played before the Final Four. Jordan Hawkins asked a simple four-word question. Did you miss us? Yes. Jordan, yes I did. We all did. And it feels so fucking good to be back.